Good morning. Today's scripture passage is from uh, Peter's first letter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I encourage you to follow along either in the text on the screens behind me or in your own Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this passage on page 1015. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. Amen. invite you to keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter, and let's pray as we look and listen to God's Word together. Gracious Father, this is your Word that we're opening before us, and therefore it's your voice we want to hear this morning. And we praise you that you are a God who speaks, a God who has not kept silent, And you are a God who speaks through your word, and you are a God who speaks by your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and eyes to see you and to hear you in your word this morning, and so to meet and to worship you and to be changed by your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, about three years ago, uh, Christianity Today ran an article discussing whether churches should display the American flag in their sanctuary or not. For decades, this has been a normal practice for a lot of churches and denominations, a mark of one's commitment to God and country. Uh, It's less common today, as people are a little wary of conflating the cause of Christ with the cause of America and all the more so as we find the causes and aims of God and country clashing more often. Uh, Russell Moore tells the story of one pastor who wanted to do away with the flag, but didn't want to be seen as un-American. So he devised a plan to secret the flag away in the middle of a Saturday night, hoping the congregation just wouldn't notice the next day. This game of rapture the flag didn't work, of course. By dawn's early light, they saw that the flag was not there. And that's when the metaphorical bomb started bursting in air. You know, it can be somewhat of a, you know, funny engagement, but it illustrates an honest question. What hath the gospel to do with politics? How should we think about the relationship between church and state? On the one hand, the church is not an American institution. God promised Abraham descendants from all nations. Jesus sent his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations. And when he returns, there will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb people 
from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. So the church is not an American institution. Nor can we honestly say, in my opinion, that America is a Christian nation. While the vision and values of this country were founded, uh, were certainly influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, that doesn't mean that our founding fathers were all Christians. They simply weren't. And the kind of revisionist history that attempts to baptize the dead and kind of claim unorthodox historical heroes for Team Jesus, frankly, does more harm than good uh, in the eyes of honest historians. Moreover, there is the simple fact that you cannot claim to have religious freedom and be a Christian nation at the same time. We need to be honest about that. The historical influence of Christianity has been good for our country, but the vision has always been one of plurality and religious freedom. That's our First Amendment right. And yet, as followers of Christ who are also citizens of this nation, we are Christians and Americans at the same time. Citizens who enjoy the rights and protections and freedoms afforded by our country and who therefore bear certain civic obligations in return, like jury duty and voting, paying taxes. Some of us make our livelihood in public service holding office or or serving in the military. Some of our private sector work is largely based on government contracts. Many of us are proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. We could sing God bless the USA in our sleep. We have friends and family who have died for this country, and we are proud and moved by that fact. And some of us are worried about the direction of our country, the kind of world we're leaving behind for our children. More than that, being a good Christian actually means being a good citizen. Paul tells us in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So as much as we might want to just kind of hit the eject button on the whole political scene and avoid it altogether and try and separate ourselves from the world, that option is neither possible nor biblical. So what does the gospel have to do with politics? How do we navigate the tension between church and and state. One of the, uh, well, really the main point we've been trying to make throughout this entire series on the gospel for all of life is that the good news of Jesus impacts every aspect of life, personally, in the home, at school, at work, and in the public square. So how do we engage politically without resorting to religious coercion on one side, so imposing the expressions of our faith on those who don't share that faith, or religious compromise on the other, forsaking or being forced to forsake our unique message and kingdom commitments for public acceptance and political expedience. 
Once again, the Apostle Peter offers a sage wisdom for living as God's people in a fallen world. We found ourselves in this book a lot during this series, and and here we are again. We looked at it a couple weeks ago when we began this conversation about the gospel in the public square. How do we live as Christians uh, who happen to also live in a fallen world and a culture around us, and how do we navigate that? We saw how we are strangers and exiles. That's how Peter describes us. We're resident aliens in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our our true home. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that can never perish or spoil or fade. But like a modern-day immigrant who's in a living in a land that's not their home, we reside on earth. We're waiting for our future home, the new heavens and new earth, and until that day, we live here as strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles. Not the kind who wall themselves off into kind of a, 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 their own little sheltered ghetto, nor the kind who assimilate so thoroughly that there's no trace of their unique heritage left. Rather, we are called as Christ's people to what Russell Moore has described as an engaged alienation. So we are to interact with our community and our culture in meaningful ways without compromising the gospel. Engaging, though we're still aliens and and strangers. Peter puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the non-believing world around you. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And our passage this morning flows right out of that verse in the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago as Paul applies this call to engaged alienation to the question of citizenship, to the question of interacting with the governing authorities around us. And we see two principles or guidelines that, that I keep saying Paul. This is Peter, so just ignore me when I say Paul. I guess I'm used to preaching Paul a little more than Peter. But uh, Peter gives us two guidelines or instructions for navigating this question of church and state, of gospel and politics. And the first one is this. Honor the authority of human institutions. Peter calls us to honor the authority of human institutions. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You can see a similarity with what Paul had said in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The apostles are consistent on this point. And unless you think they've just kind of gone off the rails, when Jesus answers a question about whether or not uh, believers should pay taxes, he essentially communicates this same idea. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So why would God require this of his people? Why would he ask us to actually obey 
and honor the human institutions that have authority over us. I mean, it's easy to picture if those institutions happen to operate in a relatively Christian way. We can imagine that. But let's not forget that the apostles were not speaking of a political system consistent with traditional values, but of a bloodthirsty and pagan Caesar, a government directly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Why submit to them? Well, God commands his people to submit to the authority of human institutions because those institutions have a role to play in society until Christ returns. They have a role to play until Christ returns. It's interesting, when you step back and kind of look at the the development of this theme throughout the Scriptures, um, you look at ancient Israel. One of ancient Israel's roles uh, as part of their covenant with God that we read about in the Old Testament, one of their roles was to execute justice on God's behalf. Israel is what we call a theocracy. They were a nation-state with God at their head. And so when God wanted to pour out his wrath on sin and wickedness, one of the ways he did that was through Israel as his agent of justice. So the destruction of pagan nations during the conquest and Joshua and such, uh, that wasn't just God giving Israel land. That was God punishing idolatrous nations who are living there in wickedness and in sin. Israel was God's agent of justice. The church does not have that same role. When Jesus came as Israel's king, as, as their Messiah, as true Israel himself, he takes up that role as judge. And he keeps it. It's not a role he shares with the church. He will, when he returns, he's going to execute that role justly and swiftly. Peter tells us in chapter 4 that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the one who has that authority and responsibility. And he's not asked the church to participate in that. That's not our, our job is not to execute justice or to enforce the rule of law in society. You know, the Puritans kind of wanted to try and pull that off, be a nation and the church at the same time. You can look throughout history, it never goes well. Because it wasn't something Jesus wanted his church to do. It's not, the church is not a political nation state. Instead, we are a family of ambassadors of Christ, appealing to this world on his behalf. And so that role, however, is necessary for society to function, and that's a role God has given to the state in the meantime, to, king, to the kingdoms of this world, to human institutions and governing authorities. And that's what the state is supposed to do, to execute justice and to enforce a rule of law. The emperor sends governors... Peter tells us to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Or as Paul describes it again in Romans 13, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so, paying taxes, obeying laws, these are not just matters of citizenship, these are matters of discipleship. Submitting to our governing authorities is ultimately a matter of submitting to God himself. He's put them there for his purposes. Now that raises about 50 questions for most of us. What happens when the state operates unjustly? What do you do then? What happens when the state permits and promotes things that are damaging to people? When the goals and actions of the state run counter to the vision and morals of God's kingdom? What happens when the state tries to stop you from obeying God or tries to force you to disobey? Is there ever a time when we disobey the state in order to obey God? Do we just kind of steer clearer of the state as much as we can, fly under radar, try not to get noticed? Do we stand up and get involved in loud protest or even, you know, try and run for office and change things from within? What do we do when those kingdoms clash? That brings us to the second point. Live as servants of God. Live as servants of God. God calls us to honor the authority of human institutions, but he calls us to do so as servants of God. Look again at why Peter tells them to submit in verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And again in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we don't serve the government as slaves, but freely on behalf of God as his servants, representing his kingdom as ambassadors of Christ. And so the motivation and the basis for submitting to human authorities is our ultimate allegiance to Christ. What does that look like? It means that Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king who reigns over all other kingdoms. He's the only, his is the only kingdom that is perfect and holy and just in every way, and that will last forever. America will come and go, just like every other nation around us and before us. But there will come a day, as Revelation 11 puts it, when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Every rule and authority under heaven will finally acknowledge his rightful authority over them. All nations will submit. He is the king of kings. Every king has a king over them. And his name is Jesus. And so he's the one who deserves all of our ultimate allegiance and submission. And so while we're genuinely called to honor human authorities, there is a higher authority and a more lasting kingdom to which we belong. And 
And it's this higher and supreme allegiance that actually helps guide us in knowing how to interact with the governing authorities here on earth. It's, it's understanding our role as servants of God that helps us answer the questions of what does it look like to be a good citizen here? Especially when those kingdoms clash. For instance, recognizing that we are first and foremost servants of God helps the church guard the distinction between the cause of America and the cause of Christ. That such a distinction exists should be obvious, but it isn't always. It's very easy, regardless of your political persuasion, left or right, it's very easy to often confuse the mission of God with the mission of your political party, or even to fuse those things together so that to advance one means you're advancing the other. You hear it when uh, politicians lace their political speeches with Bible verses just to kind of score points with the constituency. And you hear it when preachers give sermons that are shaped more by a political ideology than they are by the Bible. You see it when a church talks more about preserving traditional family values or educational reform than they do about preaching the gospel. It's not that family values or education don't matter. They do. But our hope is not in intact families and high school diplomas, but in a crucified and risen king. A king whose grace is sufficient for every sinner, regardless of how intact their family is or how much education they've had. That's our hope and our message. When we forget that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, what happens is we let our politics drive the gospel instead of the other way around. We put our hope in political action instead of public witness. We baptize our party's platform as though it's a mandate from heaven. We rally around political candidates like Messiah figures. Boy, you can see that every election. It's as if Jesus has come back in the form of some politician. When politics drives the gospel, as Moore explains, the church ends up with a public witness in which Mormon talk show hosts and serially monogamous casino magnates and prosperity gospel preachers are welcome into the ranks of the church regardless of the violence they do to the gospel. They are, after all, right on all the issues. The church must do better than that when it comes to engaging politics. The problem is not building political alliances with people who don't share our faith in every detail. We actually need to do a lot better job with that as well. It's a good thing for Protestants and Catholics to work together to fight against abortion, for instance. It's a good thing for uh, liberal mainline Protestants and evangelicals to work together fighting against human trafficking. So we need to do that. The problem is when we confuse that work with the gospel itself, and reduce the Christian faith to a political agenda, and then redraw the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian according to public policy. And it happens a lot. The only way that someone can say that Fox News is, quote, a prophetic mouthpiece, or Donald Trump is, quote, God's trumpet, 
or that Planned Parenthood is doing, quote, God's work, is if you replace the gospel of Jesus with some other gospel. We are called to live first and foremost as servants of God. And that means the gospel must be our priority for the church. And it must be continue to guide us and guard us and inform our politics rather than the other way around. The gospel drives our politics, not the politics driving the gospel. And when we get that order right, the gospel driving our politics, it's then that we're actually most useful to the towns and states and countries we live in. Being good disciples makes us better citizens, more useful in several ways. First, again, it keeps our our central and most important contribution Uh, It keeps our most important contribution at the center of what we do. It keeps our focus on the good news of Christ. The greatest thing that we have to offer the fallen world is not our personal piety or our moral values, but the news that there is a God in heaven who made this world and who loves this world, who is grieved to see it in the shape that it's in, and who will be faithful to make right everything that's wrong in the end. And he has started to make that make all things right. He has begun to establish his justice already by sending his son Jesus to be our Savior and King. A Savior who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, who took upon himself everything that's wrong with this broken world, and most importantly took on himself the chief thing that's wrong with this world, our sin and rebellion, the thing that's that from which every other mess comes, he bore it on himself. When he died on the cross, he paid for that sin to bring forgiveness and cleansing. When he rose from the dead, he brings new life and a fresh start, not just for people personally, but for the whole creation. He is making all things new. And when he returns, he will finish what he started. He will establish justice once and for all, as bad as it might get today. There is a God who will make it right. That's the best thing we have to give the world around us, the truth of Christ crucified and risen and coming again. It's our most important contribution to society. As Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert put it, There is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. If we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So living as servants of God helps us keep the gospel central. And that makes us better citizens. The second way it makes us better citizens is that it gives us a moral foundation for doing good in the world. Whether we do that as part of the government or alongside the government or sometimes, if necessary, in opposition to the government. One of the most repeated commands throughout 1 Peter is this call to do good. It comes up all over the place. Even if others accuse you or oppose you, to do good. So chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles 
honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As strangers and exiles in this world, we are called by the gospel to do good. Paul puts it in verse 17 to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We're called to do good, to love our neighbors. When we apply that to politics, it begins, I think, by praying for our governing officials. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So doing good as citizens of heaven who happen to also be citizens of America begins by praying praying for our neighbors, and praying for our governing authorities. I think few of us can really appreciate the pressures that come with holding a public office. The unrealistic deadlines, the constant scrutiny that every email, every decision, both from without and within, even if you don't like the way somebody governs, they need your prayers. They need your prayers. This vision of doing good also moves us not just to pray, but to do something about the wrongs that we see in the world. The gospel gives us a moral foundation for social action. We can't stand by idly when we see a person in need, when we see a wrong that needs to be righted. The freedom that we have in Christ is not something to be exploited for our own selfish gain, but to be used for others, to love our neighbors in tangible ways, to stand up and take action to protect the vulnerable, for instance, orphans, widows, the unborn, to speak out against injustice and oppression, not to turn a blind eye to it, and to work hard to find solutions to those problems that can both honor God and do good for people at the same time. It's easy for the secular world to forget that the foundation for the greatest social reforms in modern history was Christianity. We, we often forget that, but it was William, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce's Christian faith that moved him to work tirelessly to bring an end to slavery in the United Kingdom. He spent 42 years in Parliament until it was done. And he was driven by his faith in Christ, by the truth of the gospel. When Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, she awoke the seared conscience of a nation to the true evils of American slavery. The reason she wrote it, she said, is, quote, because as a woman, as a mother, I was brokenhearted with the sorrows and injustice I saw. Because as a Christian, 
I felt the dishonor to Christianity because as a lover of my country, I trembled at the day of wrath. It was Martin Luther King Jr.'s Christian faith that fueled his peaceful and persistent fight against racism and segregation in the U.S. And we, we forget that part of the narrative sometimes. But it's this vision of the gospel that so often undergirds and stand behind, stands behind the greatest social activism that our country has seen. How will we put our Christian faith into action for the better of our communities and our nations? What will that look like in our generation? Being good disciples makes us better citizens. And finally, remembering that we are servants of God first, and it's as servants of God that we submit to the state, that frees us to suffer for the cause of Christ. The time is coming and is already here when the good that we seek to do for the state will not be seen as good, but will be slandered as evil. Peter talks about it all throughout the letter. In fact, he rarely talks about doing good without talking about suffering for it at the same time. We see it today on an increasing scale. A recent New York Times editorial suggested that religious liberty should no longer be protected if gay rights are on the line, for instance. Quote, church leaders must be made to take homosexuality off the sin list. Not encouraged, but coerced. From the contraception mandate of Obamacare that forces people to pay for drugs that they know, that are known to cause abortions, to the penalization of florists and bakers whose consciences restrict them from condoning a gay wedding ceremony, and they're losing their livelihoods and their business in order to obey the law, this is perhaps the first time in American history where our laws are actually attempting to force us to disobey God. I'm not sure we've ever seen this before. So what do we do with that? Is there a limit to our obedience to human institutions? Well, the answer is yes. Daniel refused to bow in idolatry when the royal edict was issued. And he did so upon pain of death. The Hebrew midwives refused to obey Pharaoh's instruction to kill the Hebrew children. And God rewarded them for it. When James and Peter were told by the Sanhedrin to stop talking about Jesus, they replied, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So what do we do when we find ourselves on the wrong side of political power? Well, first, we keep doing good. We keep doing good. Loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, laying our lives down in love and service, whatever the cost. Because not only are we following a pattern that Christ left us in identifying with his sufferings, we will be vindicated in the end. Again, chapter 2, verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There will come a day when doing good, when, when the suffering we receive for doing good will be vindicated. So the first thing we do is we just keep doing good. We keep loving and serving. The second thing we do is that we exercise whatever political rights that we still have. You know, it's interesting. Paul, when he, is a being, uh, when he was arrested wrongly in the book of Acts, he appealed to his political right to appear before Caesar rather than just kind of let them get away with, oops, sorry, didn't know you're a Roman citizen, shouldn't have flogged you, and so on. He's like, no, I have a right here to appear before your higher-ups, and I want to talk to them. He did it not because he was so interested in defending rights, but because it gave him an audience to preach the gospel. But we work within the political rights we've been given as much as we have. You know, we're fortunate enough to live in a country where we still do have a voice. As much as we might wring our hands in panic, we have it pretty good compared to many parts of the world. We can lobby. We can vote. We can run for office. We can write opinions. We can be politically engaged. And we shouldn't shy away from doing those things in an, in an honest and humble way. Not only when our religious liberty is at stake either, but when the well-being of others is on the line. Christians shouldn't only be interested in politics when it affects us. We should stand and, and work hard and not remain politically silent about other problems in the world. Racism, gun violence, abortion, drug addiction, human trafficking. Pastor Bruce will talk about this broader question of social justice in a few weeks. We should exercise our political rights as servants of God as long as we have them. But the common thread of each of those examples of civil disobedience, Daniel, the midwives, Peter, and so on, the common thread of all of them is a willingness to face the consequences for obeying God instead of man. This too, quite ironically, is a way of honoring the governing authorities. We're still willing to submit to their laws, but you're going to have to punish me instead a willingness to receive their unjust verdict if that's what it comes to. Because once again, we know that there is a judge higher than them who will judge justly in the end. And so being willing to suffer for doing good, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The judgment he faced was unjust in the highest way. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That is the ultimate power for change. Not our political action, but the cross of Christ.
And so Russell Moore encourages us. We should protect our legacy of a free church in a free state. We ought to pray and work for a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But that is not the ultimate sign of our success. It is better for future generations to be willing to go to jail for the right reasons than to exchange the gospel of the kingdom for a mess of Esau's pottage. Sometimes jails filled with hymn-singing, letter-writing, gospel-preaching Christians can do extraordinary things. So we may not fly the stars and stripes in our sanctuary, and I'm not of the inclination to suggest that we do. But the gospel bids us to honor the authority of human institutions for the sake of the Lord as servants and representatives of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are free. Free, Lord, not to do whatever we want, for that would be slavery, but free to serve you, free to walk as your children, free to lay our lives down for others, free to be accused of wrongdoing, free to serve you whatever the cost. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us navigate this, um, for me, nauseating, uh, very often frustrating and confusing world of politics, Lord. Some of us eat it up, some of us hate it. But Lord, we live here as Americans, and so give us your wisdom to put your gospel into practice. And may being good disciples make us better citizens, Lord. Not just for the good of America, but for the glory of your kingdom that others might know and worship you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.